And at this time, we will now be turning our attention to the reading and preaching of God's Word. Uh, many of you know that we're going through the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And to help us with the reading for today, I win. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own toil. Good morning. Before I start the sermon, I'd like to follow up with a few words from last week's sermon. Last week on Sunday, I spoke about two majority cultures at Grace West. I said there's white folks who were born in North America, and there are second-generation Asians as well. And I was encouraging these two groups to see and welcome those who are not uh, part of the majority. I also said in the sermon that many white and Asian folks feel connected, they feel belonging in the church, and these uh, people should welcome others. My desire in the sermon was to respond to voices that the staff and pastors are hearing from members of the community who are black. What we've been hearing is that many of them feel um, disconnected, passed over, left out, and feel ignored. And I want, I want change in my own heart and conduct, and I, I want to see change in the church culture as well. But as I called for, for change, for greater welcome, I suggested in the sermon that white folks and Asian folks have the same experience, the same majority, the same kind of influence. Uh, my words blended together, whites and Asians, into one, which is unjust. It's unjust, and it's not accurate. My conversations with you over the past week have helped me to realize that, and I'm saddened to realize that I I called for unity in a way that caused alienation, in fact, 
uh, for those who are Asian in our church. Now, I do believe that there, there is a way to call all of us who are not black to welcome and receive and, and host uh, those who are black. I do believe there's a way to do that rightly. Um, but what's become clear to me is that it takes time to understand how to, how to do that in the right way uh, that does not alienate others. So I want to say that I'm committed to the, the long work of that, uh, to, the, to the patient listening and conversations, and I'm grateful for the diversity of our church uh, and for the patience of those who have talked with me and uh, shared with me over this past week. And we're going to continue this conversation together. We will. Okay, we're continuing to look at the Sermon on the Mount. And we hear in the scripture reading today, Jesus says, do not be anxious. And that sounds like uh, a hard word to hear right now, especially. Some of you have been laid off. You have parents with health complications. If you have investments, they've been, they've been hit really hard in the past months. And it's hard to hear Jesus say this. And, and you've been reading articles about the Canadian economy, about household debt taking off and about about oil price collapse and about unemployment uh, rising to historic highs. And Jesus says, in the midst of this, he says to us, do not be anxious. Which sounds kind of like the last thing that you probably want to hear because now, okay, now I feel anxious and guilty because Jesus told me not to feel this way. But we need to hear this word actually. We tend to think that anxiety is like natural and normal, a part of life, but Jesus does not see it that way. Jesus understands anxiety. He understands the human heart, and he says anxiety does you nothing good. Nothing good. Jesus knows that the effect anxiety has on human beings beneath all appearances, the the effect is dehumanizing. The fear about food and drink, the fear that you won't have enough, the impulse to, to snatch and grab an elbow to the front of the line. We've seen that kind of thing happen in the past months, especially in March with the kind of panic buying that took place. People stockpiling food in their own homes, stockpiling more than they need at the expense of others not having enough. And we don't actually understand how supply chains work. We don't understand how grocery stores work. We just see bare shelves and panic, anxiety. We've seen anxiety do that these days, in these difficult and uncertain days. But you know, anxiety is there in the good times, too. It's, it's more subtle, maybe, but it's there. You see it in a thing like white flight. Here's one definition of that. It's the large-scale migration of white people from areas becoming more racially diverse. 
And we might think about American cities like Cleveland and Oakland and Chicago, but this happens in Canada as well. Uh, about a year ago, there was a group of us at Grace West reading a book titled The Inconvenient Indian. And it's by an author named Thomas King, who's from the Cherokee Nation. At one point, Thomas King talks about buying a home in Lethbridge, Alberta, in 1988. And he and his wife are looking at this neighborhood. They find a bungalow. It's a nice home. And they, they settle. They buy it. They move in. Um, a couple of months later, they get uh, a yellow piece of paper in their mailbox, and all their neighbors do is canvassed the whole neighborhood from a prominent realtor in the city. And the paper says that a Treaty 7 family has moved in to the neighborhood. Now, in that area, Treaty 7 is code for Indians. Now, the obvious meaning, it's not subtle. The obvious meaning is Indians have moved in to this neighborhood. Your property value is about to fall. So to save your investment and yourself, call me. I'll sell your home. I'll help you move to a neighborhood that is safe. And that is dehumanizing. Really, to everyone involved, it's dehumanizing. But that's what anxiety does. It drives people to abandon their dignity and to, to grab what you can and to fight to keep it tooth and nail. There is a better way to live than that. It's the way of God's children. It's the way that God teaches his children to live to think differently, to act differently. Jesus says it here. He says, do not be anxious. God is your father. You're his children. Do not be anxious. Now, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this, but when Jesus says to his audience, God is your father, that's actually a radical statement in that day, at that time. The Old Testament scripture would sometimes talk about God as a father, but not often, actually. And the times it did talk about God as father, it was about the whole nation of Israel. No one in the Old Testament said, God is my father, personal, my personal father. For them, that would be like if, if you had a private meeting with a justice of the Supreme Court of Canada and in that meeting, you didn't call the justice your honor. You, you, you called them my father instead. One of the Old Testament Jews would say, what? You can't, you can't do that. You can't, you can't call God your father. God is in heaven. God is high and lofty, dwells in, in the heavenlies. God, you can't do that. You can't bring... God down into your living room. But that is what, that's exactly what God does in the gospel. He sent Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in order to bring you into his sonship. And this is the greatness of what Jesus 
accomplished. Jesus changed the entire concept of God for the rest of human history afterward. And for you personally, because when you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you, when you believe he was born for you and he lived for you and his teaching, his miracles, he did for you and he went to the cross for you with your sin upon him and he died and he rose for you. When you believe all of those things and when you give over control of your life to Jesus as your king and you trust him, God has become your father. According to Jesus, every human being is, every human being relates to God as their creator. God is the creator, the maker of every person equally. God is the judge of every man and woman equally. But this is God's invitation in the gospel. Come to me. Be my child through my son. And your creator becomes your father. And he doesn't just forgive your sin. He does that, of course, but so much more. Your father is faithful to care for you and is generous to provide for you and is interested in everything that you do and teaches you how to live and guides you in the decisions that you make and listens to you, always available to listen to you and helps you grow into maturity. That's your father. God is your father. You're his child. And it is not a stretch to say that that idea is the, the foundation to all of Jesus' teaching. In the Sermon on the Mount, 17 times, Jesus says to his audience, God is your father. And in many different ways, Jesus is saying, God's your father, so live as his children. Live as his children in your character, in your ethics, in your values, in your priorities. You live out your status as God's children. And in this text, we see that in two ways. You live as God's children when you correct wrong thinking. And second, when you correct wrong priorities in your heart and in your life. First, you correct wrong thinking. A recent survey by Mental Health Research Canada showed that since the pandemic began, there has been a fourfold increase of people who identify their anxiety is high. And of course, part of that is related to the loss of work, uncertainty about food and rent, and so on. And Jesus is speaking to that very kind of anxiety here in this text, the fear that you won't have enough. Now, with anxiety, your heart is essentially talking to yourself. And your heart is saying things like, Look at you now. What have you done? You don't have enough. You don't know how to take care of yourself. 
You can't do the most basic things. What have you done? How are you going to get through? Your heart is a rambler. I wonder if you've ever had a conversation with a rambler. This is the kind of person who just like talks and talks and it's never your turn. They just keep talking and going in circles and saying the same thing. Your heart is like that. Your anxious heart is like that. And here's how you deal with anxiety. You interrupt your heart. Because faith is not a passive thing. It's not just passing pleasant ideas through your mind. Faith is where you have an argument with your heart. You wrestle with your heart. And how you do that is you take what Jesus says, what he has said in his word, and you take it into that argument with your heart. So what has Jesus said? Look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Look at the birds, Jesus says. God feeds them. How does that happen? What you don't see is God holding out like a divine hand with bird seed on it. No, of course not. What you see is that God made birds with beaks and with little wings and with instincts so that whether it's worms or seeds or fish or insects or whatever, God feeds them. Birds have no plan. They have no tools. They have no savings. They don't store up. But God feeds them. And the big word that's behind this is providence. This is a a theological word that underlies what Jesus is talking about here. Providence. You hear the word provide inside the word providence. Providence is the way that God orders nature and sustains nature. It's the way that God designed how nature works and how creatures live and move about. It's the way that God has ordered everything so that the things in creation are not by chance, they're by God's fatherly hand. Now, if God feeds the birds as their creator, how much more will God feed you, provide for you as your father? And how does God feed you? How does that happen? Again, it's not by a divine hand that holds out food. God gave you a strong body and a mind and reason, intellect. God gave you parents and teachers to help train you. God gave you resources and opportunities. And all of that, all of that is providence. And what's more, God made human beings with an instinct to organize themselves with government. That's providence too. God's providence is why our government has stepped up in a big way during this pandemic. God is over the federal government of Canada and all levels of government underneath. So this is how you fight anxiety and wrong thinking. 
you listen to what Jesus has said and to what he says here. You listen to what he's saying and how he opens your eyes to see a world of providence. God's hand over all things as their creator, but to you as your father. How could he not care for you? He loves you. He's your father. Now, this is not to say, of course, that you will never have trouble in your life. God cares for the birds. And we know this also, that birds grow old and birds die. And the flower fades. The grass withers. It does. But this is God's providence, that whether there is rain or drought, whether there is a good harvest or a bad harvest, whether there's health or sickness or prosperity or poverty, all things come not by chance, but by the hand of the Father, your Father. And whatever trouble may come to you, whether it's illness, whether it's loss of work, even then and always, you have a Father, and he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, at this point, I wanted to ask, what is the alternative? What's the alternative to this worldview of providence? And on this point, I'd like to especially speak to the, those who are listening who don't identify as, as Christian. What's the alternative worldview to a world of providence? Now, the most common worldview is one where you see yourself as the one in control. You provide. You see yourself as strong and capable. And I want to say that you've made a leap of faith against the evidence. You think that you're in control, and that is a leap of faith. It's, it's, a, it's a blind faith. Because circumstances will come your way. You get bad news from the doctor, or you get called into your boss's office. And what makes the bad news devastating news is that you realize at that time that your whole worldview was wrong. You are not in control. You are not in charge. Now, given the kind of world that we live in, wouldn't it be a good idea to lay down the control illusion? Wouldn't it be good to begin now trusting the one who is in control? Wouldn't it be good now to begin working faith into your heart, this, this providence faith into your heart day by day and season by season so that you build your house on a rock? And, and when, not if, when the rain comes and the wind blows and the floods rise, your house at the end of the storm is standing because it's built on a rock. That is God's invitation to you, that you come to him and listen 
to Jesus Christ. And God becomes, through faith in Christ, God becomes your father also. So to recap, here's where we've come. To you who believe God is your father, you're his child, and you live as God's child when you, when you correct wrong thinking. You take what Jesus has said, you take it into an argument with your heart, and you argue with your heart from a place of anxiety to faith, into growing faith. Now, second, to live as God's children, you correct wrong priorities in your heart and life. Everyone has got priorities. You've got thing, something in your life that you seek first. Why? Because God made you that way. God made you to center your life around something. You don't just drift through life aimlessly. You have a direction, and you're chasing after that thing. And this is what makes you tick. This is what gives meaning to your life. Everyone seeks. But Jesus here gives a warning that what you seek first can be worthy or it can be unworthy of that priority in your life. Look at verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now, of course, Gentiles were not at that in that day when Jesus is speaking. Gentiles were not always hungry and naked, of course. So what is Jesus saying? What is this kind of seeking that drives the anxious question, what shall we eat, what shall we wear? In that day, food and clothing were not just to prevent hunger and exposure. There was a status marker that came from the food you ate and the kind of clothing that you wore. This had to do with your image. It had to do with public honor. Now at that time there were there were two basic articles of clothing. There was the there was the tunic, the undergarment, and there was the cloak which went over it. The, the cloak was a longer sleeveless garment. And this was the same for everyone, women and men, and the rich and poor. But there was lots of variety in how this clothing would look, depending on on wealth and socioeconomic and so on. The tunic was made of linen and cotton. And for ordinary folks, the tunic would be brown or gray because it was not dyed with with any color. Uh, it would be simple in a way that would let people work and it wouldn't get in the way. It wouldn't prevent work. Now, for the wealthy, the tunic would be, would be larger. It would be longer because the wealthy didn't do manual work. The clothing was more elaborate. Uh, the most wealthy would wear a tunic of pure white and a cloak that was solid purple. 
When you saw someone dressed that way in the street, you noticed, and you would get out of the way for that person to walk by. That was an important person. That kind of clothing brought honor. But equally, clothing could bring shame. There could be defects with clothing, like, a, like an older cloak or tears in the fabric that you couldn't hide. And this would bring shame. These kind of flaws were actually quite common in clothing, but it was an anxious thing because rich or poor, it didn't matter. People were very conscious about their status, about their image. There was a lot of concern for the social status. Now, 2,000 years later, are we any different? No, of course we're not. We, we go after the same things. We go after, we chase after status because status whispers to your heart that you're accepted, that you're worthy, that you're desirable. And Jesus says here, status chasing is the wrong priority in your life. Do not chase after clothing or after any other kind of status symbol. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if it's a clothing competition, then King Solomon is number one as far as human beings are concerned. He has clothing of purest white, and his, his garments are, are, are purple and scarlet. He's bejeweled with gemstones and gold. But do you see the humor in what Jesus says here? If you want comparisons, even Solomon, King Solomon, ranks after the lily of the field. Look at the field, Jesus says. Look at the thousands of, and thousands of lilies in the field. They're dressed, every one of them, in more beautiful clothing than the richest king in Israel. So don't chase after status. God clothes you. Be content with what you have. Don't run after don't run yourself into anxiety and worry. That's such a waste of your emotions. That's a, that's a waste of the opportunities that are around you for more important things. These are the more important things. This is it. Make this your priority. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that means, means everything that Jesus has been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount up to this point. Make this your priority in life. Seek this first. That means that you bring all your creativity and your energy. Where you see decay in society, you move in to that place as salt and light. What else? Where there's conflict in your family, you turn the other cheek. You pray for your enemy. You seek to reconcile with them. What else? You fight against lust in your heart. 
You help your brothers and sisters in that struggle. You give money to organizations that serve the poor. You give secretly. You give generously and you store up treasure in heaven. And you pray for your neighbor who doesn't know Christ. You seek ways to build trust with your neighbor so that you can have the kind of conversations about things that really matter in life. And you can share about Jesus Christ with that person and what he means to you, what you found in him. What else? It means you accept losses that come with following Christ. Whatever persecution comes, whatever loss to your reputation or opportunities for advancement, you accept the loss. You stay loyal to Christ. God knows what you need. He can take care of you, take care of your needs so that you're freed up to seek the kingdom, to seek the kingdom first. I'll end with a story from the English monarchy from Queen Elizabeth I. Uh, This was not the current queen. This was the queen in the 1600s. She once told a man that she wanted him to go on a voyage. She said that we need your skills on this voyage to make it a success. But he was reluctant because he, he was a business owner and business was not doing well. And he expressed to her his his concern that if if he went on this voyage, then his business would not survive. And she looked at him and she said, My dear friend, you mind my business and I will mind your business. And that is what God is calling you to here through Jesus' words. That you were made for this purpose. You are made to bring all your energy and your skill and creativity to seek the kingdom. This is the cosmic purpose that you were made for. Anything else, anything else is not worthy of that first priority place in your life, in your heart. Let this be your first priority to seek the kingdom, to obey the King, Jesus Christ. God is your father. He will care for your needs. He will surely care for you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the patient teaching of Christ. He knows our weakness. He knows the anxiety of our hearts. He knows that we need to be corrected out of wrong thinking. Uh, He knows we need to be called back from chasing after wrong priorities. Help us, God, to hear and to receive this word of his. Help us to take it into our hearts. Help us to live as your children. Help us to seek your kingdom by your spirit's power. We ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.